0: Now look, I, I forgot, I didn't tell you guys this, but Jeff only speaks French, so I don't know how we're going to get through this. I didn't really think about that. So uh, Jeff, you think you might can whisper a couple of words in English while you're here? You know, we didn't, we didn't even think about that, did we? And so uh, uh, Jeff, come on, Tonda, would you stand? Uh, listen, make sure that when you see her, you hug her neck. Jeff, you can just sort of pat him on the shoulder. But that right there is the heart behind this ministry. I know it is because is the the heart behind our ministry. And Jeff, we're glad to have you here. We're excited about you being here. Uh, He's gonna speak to us, pastor, uh, teacher, missionary, but he's gonna share with us. And I I know he's gonna talk about his family because he's awful proud of his family Mm -hmm. and what God has done. And uh, you know, we talk about kingdom families. How, How is it some of the most impactful things you can do is not just talking and bringing your kids to church, talking about Jesus, Demonstrating to them what ministry looks like. Um, some of the most impactful things in our family's life has been when we've been on mission together, not just going to church together. And so I, I know that Jeff will, will integrate some things this morning, but Jeff, glad to hear, glad, glad that you're with us today, brother. Thanks Thank for you. having
1: us. Great to be back at Heritage. Now you might be thinking, back? What do you mean back? I don't remember ever seeing you before. Well, if you're sixth grader or under, You might remember us. Because last year we were here and we were with the kids, with Allison. We had a great time. We played lots of games. We taught them the Bible. We told them about missions. We even had them melt ice cubes in their hands so they could feel what it's like to live in Canada. And uh, we had a great time. And so that went great. And so now we're back here with you all. No ice cubes, though. You can say thank you uh, to Pastor Sidney for that. No ice cubes for you all this morning. I'm going to make you melt in your hands. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about our family. Uh, We've been missionaries in Quebec for 25 years. And I just want to say that we feel blessed to be missionaries. I hope that you love what you do as much as I love what I do. I hope you feel as blessed and assured that you're in God's will and what you do as I feel in what I do. Because we feel privileged to be able to be missionaries. We work with tons and tons of teenagers and I always have kids tell me, you know, I'm afraid that God's going to call me to be a missionary. I'm like, afraid? I say, that's like getting picked for the team. That's like when the president calls you and says, I need you. I said, this is a blessing and a privilege to be able to be in ministry as a full-time missionary. All right, let's go on to the first slide I'll tell you a little bit about our family. Because I think the best way to get to know us is to get to know our kids. They are not here. Uh, we have six kids. Our oldest is 29. Our youngest is 21. And so I'll just tell you a little bit about them. We're going to go from left to right. On the left there is our son, Jamin. He's 25. He's a seminary student at Liberty. And he's finishing his master's degree in a year. He's feeling like God is leading him probably towards Ireland as a missionary. And if you'll notice, he's the only boy in the picture with no woman. Uh, We are taking applications. (laughs) and uh, just give any application to my wife after the service and we'll be happy to interview any girl who wants to be a missionary wife. So please see my wife afterwards. All right, now moving uh, to the left, you see in the front there the young lady who looks very pregnant. With our son Andrew, that's our daughter-in-law, knowing me, that package has been delivered. Uh, it's a baby girl. They now have two boys and uh, a little girl. They've been married not yet four years, so you can see that we did their premarital counseling, and uh, they're they're doing great. Andrew is graduating from seminary in two weeks, and they are hoping to be missionaries in Greece. So we're very excited about that. He Andrew is our third son, directly behind Andrew uh, in the back. There are Isaiah and Bridget. Isaiah is our fifth son. And Isaiah and Bridget got married May, a year ago. And of course, it was still all the COVID closures of the border and everything else. The border is still not completely open, but uh, it was completely closed at that time. Our family's in America, her family is in Canada. How do you get people to a wedding when they're in two different countries and they can't cross the border? So what we did is we had the wedding on the border. Uh, The US-Canada border was the fence right down the middle aisle. And we had the, the bridesmaids and groomsmen walk up one in one country, one in the other country, and they split. We kept the married couple in the same country. Makes for a much better honeymoon. And uh, so and we had the wedding there, and then they are now in the United States, and Isaiah will be starting seminary this fall, and they want to be missionaries. They're not sure where yet. Then moving on still to the, to the right, uh, in the light blue shirt with the blue trim on the sleeves, is our son Caleb, our second son, and his fiance Virginie. Uh, she is also a French-Canadian girl. All of our sons have married French-Canadian girls. Uh, But you don't have to be French Canadian if you want to meet Jamin, so see my wife afterwards. And uh, and Virginie and Cale are getting married on Labor Day, Uh, so we're excited about that. They want to be missionaries. They're not sure where uh, they're praying about that. They've got a lot of things to pray about right now. And then uh, in the far right, with the ball cap, is our oldest son, Nate. He just was hired as associate pastor at First Baptist Church of Hanover, Pennsylvania, the church where my wife grew up, where her dad was pastor. That church has now hired our son as associate pastor, so we have some deep roots there We're excited for what God is going to do with him and his wife, Marianne. And then standing in the very front there holding the baby is our daughter, Hannah. She's holding one of her nephews, uh, like all good young aunts do. And uh, she's graduating from Liberty in a couple weeks with a bachelor's degree, and she wants to become a missionary. So we're super excited about what God has done in our family and super excited to see our kids go. And a great way to get to know us is to get to know our kids. All right, let's go on to the next slide, please. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Quebec. I have to do my little survey I do at every church I go to. How many people here have been to Quebec? Anybody? Oh, quite a few, good, good, good. There'll be a French quiz afterwards. Uh, Just kidding. Okay, let's go on to the first slide. Quebec was founded by the French. The first French explorers came in 1535, so we're pushing almost 500 years ago. Jacques Cartier, you might remember that from your history class. Uh, If you're of a certain age, you had history when you were in school. I don't know if they still do that, but they did do that at one time. We had history classes in school, and uh, we learned about Jacques Cartier, and they founded, the French founded that part of Canada. And the idea was that this part, New France, would be the perfect Roman Catholic kingdom. You see, the Catholic Church in France was very disappointed in the Protestant Reformation. They didn't like it. They didn't like Martin Luther, John Calvin. They didn't like those guys. And so the idea was, we're going to go create a new Catholic kingdom founded by Jesuit Catholic missionaries in Canada. And it's going to be the perfect Roman Catholic kingdom. No Protestants will be allowed. If you're not Catholic, you can't live here. And that's what they did. They founded Quebec, where we now live, and all Protestants were put out. And for a few hundred years, the only people that lived in Quebec were people who were Roman Catholic French speakers. No one else was allowed. Slowly, some English settlers arrived after Quebec, uh, after France lost the war, the French, what we call the French and Indian War, they lost it to England. So England got control of Canada, so some English people started to move into Quebec. And then it became English, Protestant, Catholic, French. To this day, if you tell people that you're a French Protestant, that doesn't sound right to them. That'd be like if you say, I speak French English. You'd be like, huh? What does that mean? You mean French and English? No, French English. I don't understand. That's because when they hear the word French, French means Catholic. When they hear the word English, English means Protestant. And so these two things were, the languages were tied to the religion. All right, let's go on to the next slide, please. Now, all through the 1700s, 1800s, there there were almost no known believing Christians who believe that salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. In 1835, a group of missionaries came from the French part of Switzerland, established an orphanage in the city of Montreal, had a little success, but they were mainly just working with orphans. In the early 1900s, around 1910, there was a small revival among French speakers. People got saved. They they came to understand what the Bible really says. These people were immediately put out of the French community. They were forced to go live in the English community. Uh, The island of Montreal, Montreal is an island kind of like New York City is an island. The west end is all English people. So if you were French and you became a Protestant, you're no longer allowed to speak French. You can't keep your money in a French bank. You can't send your kids to French school. You have to go live with the English because you're now Protestant. And so this was the status quo all through the 20th century. In in the 1950s, the young man you see on your left, he's not young anymore. He's actually old and then died. He's now with the Lord. I knew him, Murray Heron. Murray Heron came to Quebec as a missionary. And he started preaching in French. And he had all kinds of trouble. He was persecuted. He had people try to run him over with their car when he was standing preaching on the street corner. He had people throw handfuls of black pepper in his face. Uh, His wife said that was the only time she ever saw him stop mid-sentence in his whole life. Great persecution. He was eventually sentenced, Murray, to one year in prison in Quebec because he led a 17-year-old boy to Christ. You might be thinking, wait wait a minute, are we talking about Siberia? Mm Mm-mm, we're talking about Canada. He was sentenced to one year in the county jail because he led a boy to Christ. However, the night before his year sentence was supposed to start, the county jail burned down, which the county jail was located next to the fire department, and it burned down. And so the judge said, well, we don't know what to do. We don't have a jail anymore, so I guess you can go. And so the the next day, the next Sunday, Murray preached his sermon, the God who answers by fire, he is God. (laughs) This was the reality in Quebec. And all through the 20th century, people in Quebec were getting tired and becoming more and more secular and getting more and more tired of all authority. The authority of the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't want it anymore. The authority of English Canadians. We don't want English people telling us what to do. In the 1960s, we had what was called the Quiet Revolution. You've heard of the Velvet Revolution, maybe, that was in, in Czech Republic. The Quiet Revolution was in Quebec. We call it the Quiet Revolution because no one anywhere ever heard about it. But it was a revolution. People in Quebec tore down every English sign. Road signs that said North, those got to come down. It has to say Nord in French. It can't say South, it has to say Sud. Nothing English can be put up. Everything ripped down. And they said, we want no authority. Not God, not the Church, not the English. We want to be our own... You distinct, unique society, and what that says in the black there on your right is maintenant ou jamais now or never. Masters of ourselves, masters of our own house. Shenu means our own house. Masters of our own house. We will do it our way. And for the first time, the the strong force of the Catholic Church over Quebec, there started to be cracks in that shell, where now lots of other things can come in, but including the truth of the gospel. For the first time, Christians could come in and now start to preach, and people would be like, hey, tell me about that. I don't actually know what what you believe or what that means. Sometimes I'll tell someone, I'm a Protestant, and I remember one guy was in my basement. He was working on my well. He stopped and he said, you know, I I don't even know what a Protestant believes. What do you believe? I share the whole gospel with him right there in my basement. Let's go on to the next slide. In 1967, there was a great exposition in Montreal, kind of like a World's Fair. Anybody here who went to Expo 67? Right back there. Good for you. A couple? Okay, there were a couple in the first service, too. I was born in 68. Sorry, I wasn't there. But uh, in 1967, this World's Fair-type thing was going on in Montreal, and they were going to show the world that we're now a secular society. We're open, we're advanced, we're technological, we're like Europe. Come, I love the optimism on this girl's face. That that damn, bring your camera, you're not going to want to forget this. And they had science pavilions and futuristic pavilions, kind of like Epcot. So they had all this stuff. And so some Christians, English-speaking Christians from the city of Toronto said, you know what, we've got to do something to reach these heathen French Canadians. We'll build a pavilion, and we'll put moody sermons from science films in French. Now, if you've ever seen those, you can look for them on YouTube. They're really good. They're just dated, but they're really good little movies. And they're kind of scientific, and they present the gospel. So they translated these into French. 900,000 people went through their pavilion during the six months of Expo 67. 200,000 people Indicated by signing a decision slip that they had prayed to receive Christ. 200,000 people. Now, at that time in Quebec, there were about 50, five zero known French speaking evangelical Christians in the whole province. At that time, about five million people. Today, about nine million people. Almost no Christians. Statistically, zero. And you have 200,000 people sign a decision slip in a six month period. Now, by 1970, the real believers out of those who signed kind of emerged. By 1970, there were about 3,000. So we went from 50 Christians in 1967 to about 3,000 Christians in 1970. And all through the 70s, God sent revival. We saw people getting saved like crazy. Every week, people would bring their brother. He got saved this week. This is my coworker. I led her to the Lord this week. This is my neighbor. She got saved this week. People getting saved like crazy. In about 1985, God turned the water down to a trickle and we started to see just an occasional salvation, very much more like you would see in France or in other parts of Europe. And so by 1985, what we had is we had a church full of people who were new Christians. Can you imagine having a church this size and every single person in the church had been saved for three years? You have lots of enthusiasm, not a lot of wisdom. And what that created is a lot of church fights. And we have had huge cataclysmic church fights. Divisions in the church like crazy. So much to the point that today we estimate that three quarters of the people who are actual believers in Quebec attend no church. Because if you live in a town and you have a fight with the pastor in Quebec, there's nowhere else to go. Here, if you have a fight with the pastor, well, there are 74 other churches you can go to. There, there isn't another church, so people don't go. Maybe it's the pastor's fault, maybe it's their fault, maybe it's both their fault. We don't know, but we know that they're not in church. And so the church in Quebec is in great need of help. And we're going to see after COVID, which it's not over yet in Quebec. They just extended the mass mandate yesterday. It's not over. We're going to even see what the church is even going to look like uh, when this is all over. So please pray for the church in Quebec. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. All right, now I want to look at Acts 1.8. If you've been around many missionaries, you're thinking... Uh, don't they teach you guys any other verses when you go to school? Like Acts 1.8 is kind of like the typical missionary verse. Well, yeah, they do teach us other verses, but I'm going to go with the, with the traditional today. Acts 1.8. Because there's, I think, a special message that I know applies to me, and I think it probably applied to a lot of you as well. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay, these are Jesus' last words. I grew up in a single-parent home. My mom worked uh, for Big Brothers and Big Sisters and then the Community Mental Health Center. She was a secretary, never made much money. We were poor. And uh, I remember when my mother would leave to go to work in the summertime, and I would be home with absolutely nothing to do. I didn't have all these kids' camps, like Brian was telling you about. And uh, I had absolutely nothing to do. And uh, she would tell me, do this and do this and do this, and make sure you do this. The last thing she told me, whatever it was, do the dishes, which I usually was doing as she was pulling into the driveway at 5 o'clock. But do do that last thing she's telling me, make sure you do that. These are Jesus' last words. Jesus has not been back to earth since this. Now, yes, he spoke to us through the authors of the New Testament and he appeared to Paul and all those things. I know about that. But Jesus physically himself has not been back on earth to talk to us since then. These are his last words. The very, you know, when someone dies, and, and, and a relative or, or a friend, and you say, what, what were their last words? What, what was the last thing they said? This is Jesus' last words. His very last words are, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, that makes sense. They were in Jerusalem. This is the town where we are. Tell everybody in town about me. All right? And I want you to tell everybody in Judea, that's the country they were in. I want you to tell everybody in our country about me. That'd be like, tell everybody in Fruitland Park about me. And, and everybody in America, tell them about me. Okay, we're going to skip over Samaria for a second. Can you click back to the verse for one sec? Or actually, yeah, you can just leave it there if you want to. And then, even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay, that makes sense. So, we have local, national, the whole world. Go to the end of the world. Tell them all about me. But why Samaria? Because if we stop and think about the trajectory, local, national, global, that fits. But Samaria's dropped in there. It's kind of weird. There are Yes, yeah, Samaria was a neighboring country. But it wasn't the only neighbor of Judea. There was also Egypt. There was also Edumea, which in the Old Testament was called Edom. Those were neighboring countries, but Jesus didn't say go there. Why would Jesus pick one neighboring country and say, and make sure you go to the, the, those guys over there. Make sure you go to them. All right, let's, let's get a little background and see what we can figure out. Can we go on to the next slide? Uh, 1 Kings 16.23... And if you're looking for that in your Bible, it's right after 1 Kings 16.22. Okay, 1 Kings 16.23, and I'm going to read to verse 30. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He, we- he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, in his sin which he had caused Israel to commit, so that he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did and the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. Okay, now you might know about Ahab, we're not going to talk about him today, but Ahab, Bad, 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 bad king. Omri his dad. Not, not a nice family. It's interesting because Omri in secular history, if you read ancient history books, I did my master's degree in Old Testament Hebrew and did a lot of Old Testament stuff. Omri's kind of a guy. He was kind of important. If you, even secular writers will write about this Omri king, he was, you know, he built Samaria, he kind of built it up into a power. He was probably the second most powerful king of the Northern Kingdom after Jeroboam II. But in the Bible, Omri gets like six verses because he's a loser. He's a spiritual loser. He doesn't do anything of value for what God is writing for, for what the purposes of the scripture are. Omri, yeah, he's another king of Israel that blew it. This is who Omri was. And so we know that from the beginning of the founding of the city of Samaria, it was evil. It was an evil king who founded this city, and the city always did evil. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. And the next passage is going to be in 2 Kings 17. Not 1 Kings, 2 Kings 17. 6 to 18, and then I'm going to skip ahead to 24. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala and Gozan and on the Haber River and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. And that just basically means they're worshiping idols. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things and provoked the Lord to anger. They worshiped idols. Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe the commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen and were stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, Do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. Verse 24. The king of Assyria then brought people from Babylon, Kuthath, Ava. hamath and sephar vaim and settled them in the towns of samaria to replace the israelites they took over samaria and lived in its towns so this is what happened the people of israel the northern kingdom did evil god warned them he warned them he warned them he warned them and this is this is kind of a message for us for america warning 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 don't think that god's gonna forever let it go finally boom he brings judgment he warned he warned he warned boom that's it you're done. They get carted off, never to be seen again. These are not the people that went into captivity and came back. These are the people that went away, and we don't know what happened to them. They're gone. He took them away. And the Assyrians, who most historians consider the most cruel army that has ever lived, including the Nazi army in World War II, the Assyrian army, more cruel. The Assyrians conquered them, carried them away, and then they brought people from other places. Their way of keeping crowds calm, keeping people tamped down politically was shuffle them all around. It would be like if someone came and took over the United States and they said, okay, all you people from Florida, you're going up to Maine. You're all going to freeze your tails off up there. And all you people from Maine, you're going to, to Colorado. And all you people from Colorado, you're going to Washington. And all you people from Washington, you're going to North Carolina. Well, people would be all mixed up. They wouldn't know the area. They would be new to them. And so they would be less likely to have a revolt against the Assyrian authority. So the Assyrians took away most everybody. They normally would leave the lower classes, the uneducated, the very poor, crippled, people who, who would not contribute much to the new society where they were going to haul them away. So they left this kind of lower class group of Israelites, and they moved into Samaria, all these people from these other countries. These people from these other countries brought their ways, their idol worship of their idols from wherever they came from, from their gods, and they mixed with the Jews who had not been good Jews anyway, in Samaria. So this is what happened, okay? We'll go on to the next slide. Now, let this bake for 750 years, okay? So you have this, this mix of people from outside, non-believing Jews, idol worship, all this stuff, mixing for 750 years. Now, 750 years, we can just say that. It doesn't sound like that's a long time. 750 years? I think most of us would be hard-pressed to name one person that lived 750 years ago, like a famous person that lived in 13 or 1272. Uh, Let me think for a minute. Maybe one. 750 years, that's a long time ago. And for 750 years, they mixed and they formed their own culture, their own religion. Now, their own religion did away with the Old Testament, except for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why did they do that? Well, because all those prophets, those nasty prophets, they say mean things about Samaria, like the thing I just read. So, you know, if there's something in the Bible you don't like, well, then just say, I don't believe that part of it. <laughs> you thought that was new. That's very old. And so they said, well, we don't, but we don't accept the rest of the Old Testament because that just says bad things about us. We don't like it. So we just accept this stuff that doesn't actually talk about us existing. And then to boot, because they were mixed up Jews and not quite pure Jews, or not at all pure Jews, the Jews in Jerusalem said, well, you guys can't come into our temple anymore. No, you're not welcome here. And so they said, fine, we'll build our own temple. So they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. You remember Jesus with the woman at the well? She says to him, you Jews say we should worship in this temple, but we have our own temple. That's what she's talking about, that temple. And so over 750 years, a great dislike grows between Jews and the Samaritan group uh, in what would now be the middle of Israel, north of Judea. Okay, can we go on to the next slide? Let's go to Luke 9:51. Luke 9:51 to 56 As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, he's going to Jerusalem to go to the temple. Where Jesus did his ministry, you probably remember around the Sea of Galilee, Tiberius. We're going to be there Lord willing doing evangelism this summer. In about 8 weeks from now we'll be there. And to get from Tiberias down to Judea, most Jews would go circuitous. They would go way out here by the Jordan River and go down because they didn't even want to go through Samaria because we hate those people so much. But Jesus was not interested in doing it that way, so he went straight through Samaria, headed for the Jerusalem temple. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, 52, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem, that is, for the Jerusalem temple. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, would you like us to burn these people to little crispy pieces of bacon? It's interesting because Jesus was rejected in lots of places. You remember? There were people who didn't listen to Jesus. There were Pharisees who didn't like him, uh, Sadducees who said mean things about him. You never see James, John, and the other disciples ready to burn those people. But if it's an opportunity to burn Samaritans, Lord, we have enough faith to do this. We can call down fire like Elijah and burn these Samaritans. Just say the word. We'll be happy to do that because they don't like you. You can see the racism, the prejudice in the minds of Jesus' disciples against these Samaritans. Remember, these Samaritans were messed up. It's not that they weren't wrong, they were wrong. They had all kinds of crazy ideas. But Jesus said, no, 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 we're not about that. He rebukes his disciples, and they move on. All right, let's go over to chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, if we can go to the next slide. It's probably just across the page in your Bible. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I always kind of get a chuckle out of this idea of Good Samaritan, because no Jew living in the first century would have ever said Good and Samaritan. (laughs) It's like a square circle. Uh, There's no such thing as a Good Samaritan. It doesn't exist. And we have it all in our Bibles, Good Samaritan because we know the context but no Jew in that time period ever would have said that so let's start in Luke 10:25. it says 30 we'll start in 10:25. on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus teacher he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus says how's it written in the law how do you read it he answered love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself so Jesus says ding right answer do this and you'll live as a typical seminary student, the teacher of the law says something like you would hear in some philosophy school, yeah, but, but who is neighbor? What, is, what does neighbor mean? What, what, what does it mean to be a neighbor? I don't, I don't quite get that. And I, and I was glad I went to seminary, and I recommend it for anybody, but this is a seminary type question. And so instead of Jesus giving him a definition, he says, oh, you want to know what a neighbor is? I got a story for you. So I got a story for you, and I'll read it to you now. It is, in reply, uh, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he bandaged his wounds. He went to, to him. Oh, excuse me. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for every extra expense you may have. Now Jesus says, "Which of these three do you think was his neighbor?" Now you have to understand the context. The teachers of the law thought that the the Levites. And the priests were not good. They were theological liberals. The Pharisees considered themselves, and they were, in fact, theological conservatives. And so they didn't like priests and Levites. So when Jesus starts a story, he's sucking in. He's, he's, he's pulling in this teacher of the law to lower the boom on him. He says, oh, this priest went by. And, the, and you can just imagine. We can imagine the... The teacher of the law, priests, you know, they're all liberal anyway. And then he says, and then this Levite went by. Of course a Levite would do, that's what they would do. And you can just imagine him thinking, okay, now he's going to say one of us, one of the good guys, the good guys, us, the, the teachers of the law. And then Jesus goes all the way out and he says, and then someone came along and helped him, and oh, by the way, that was a Samaritan. And oh, by the way, that's loving your neighbor. The teacher of the law is so shocked by this when he says, who, who, who acted like a neighbor? He says, um, the one who had mercy on him. He can't say the word Samaritan. He's so prejudiced. He can't say Samaritan. He's the one who showed him mercy. Jesus exposes to his disciples and this teacher of the law his own prejudice. That he is anything but a neighbor. He is not a neighbor. He says, well, what is my neighbor? Well, you, the fact that you hate Samaritans shows that you're not neighborly at all. All right, let's go on to the next slide. I want to tell you that the gospel is for all peoples. Jesus intends for all people, all outcasts, all people, whatever your people, whoever your people are, whatever kind of your people don't like, those are the people you need to make sure you're trying to reach. And every people, every group, every town, every workplace, every neighborhood has somebody that nobody likes, some outcast. Every family has some outcast, some weird uncle that nobody likes. The gospel is for all people. So I want to take a few minutes to tell you about our ministry, and then I'm going to come back and try to tie this up. Can we go on to the next slide? All right, when we became missionaries 25 years ago, my wife and I had three basic principles of mission that still guide what we do today. Our first was ask for prayer only. We were sent out from her home church, which is a Southern Baptist church, and you might be familiar. Southern Baptist churches uh, support their missionaries 100%, but we went out as independent missionaries. There are no Southern Baptist missionaries at that time in Quebec. We went out completely alone. And a lot of people said, oh, you're going to have to go out and raise money. You're going to have to go get money. And we said, no, you know what? We're not going to do that. If God is hiring us, God is going to pay us. And so we're going to just trust him. We're going to go. We're going to get prayer partners. We traveled around and we asked people to pray for us like I'm going to ask you to do before I leave to sign up to pray for us. We went around. Our goal was to get 60 prayer partners to pray for us each day. So, 60 different people per day, so 60 times seven days a week, 420 people. Once we got 420, we're gone. So we ended up actually getting 455 prayer partners, and we left. We moved to Quebec. We had no promise of support, no money. At that time, four kids, and we left. And I can tell you, 25 years later, every single month, money comes in. We get money in the mail. It's never the same amount twice. As you can see, I'm not starving. The Lord has taken care of us, everything that we need, and he continues to provide for us. Our second principle of mission was build local churches. You know, Jesus said, I would build my church. He didn't say, I'll build my camp or my uh, Christian college or my radio station or my mission organization. He said, I'll build my church. Now, those things can all be good if they seek to build churches. Why? Because the church is a perfect microcosm of the body of Christ. The church is all of us. In in fact, in the church, you can find all kinds of people. You can find tall people, short people, rich people, poor people, beautiful people, most are not. But you can find all kinds of people in the local church. So when anyone comes into the church, they can kind of feel like, "I, I fit here. I belong. These are people like me. And the church is the way that we reach the world. And then our third principle of mission was active discipleship. I see Jesus and I see Paul making disciples. They're the only people in the New Testament that you see making disciples. And what do they do when they make disciples? They bring people along. They don't just teach. I think a lot of times where we've lost people in the church is because we teach, 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 instead of come, 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 let's go, let's go, we'll go. And a lot of times, I have to tell you, when you bring people along, they say things sometimes like, oh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Or they do something, you're like, oh, okay, we, let's, have a, let's have a quick powwow over here before you do that again. But that is how disciples are made, teaching and involving and bringing along. And that's what we have done for the 25 years we've been in ministry and we are still doing and have every intention to do. Disciples are made by bringing them along and having active discipleship. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. We have three main ministries. Next slide, please. Now, uh, our first 22, three years in Quebec, we would go into a local church, help a French church, and work in that one church develop youth leaders in the church, evangelize and disciple young people, work with the deacons, sometimes a little harder than even working with the kids, and get the whole church, get everything going, and then move on to another church. We had our own children at home, and we wanted them to kind of have a church that kind of felt like their own. We still do, we have always traveled a lot. I speak in about 20 different churches a year, but we wanted our kids to kind of feel like they had a church, and we could do ministry in that church. Well, our kids are up and gone now. And we have 34 years of youth ministry experience, 25 up there, nine in the States before we moved up there. And so we said, we don't know exactly when you become an expert in something, but if you've been doing it 34 years, you must be getting kind of close. And so we started this ministry called Youth Ecclesia in 2020, because 2020 was a great year to start something new. And we started uh, Youth Ecclesia, and our idea was we're going to help French churches around the world, 47 countries that speak French. We're going to go into a church for a month completely free of charge, analyze everything they do, talk to their youth leaders, talk to the kids, talk to the parents, talk to the pastors, everything, and then give them all the materials that we've created over the last 25 years. I've written thousands of Bible study questions in French, tons of stuff. We're going to give that to them to try to build youth outreach around the French world. And then, of course, working with kids and working with families, we've seen a lot of things in a lot of families. And one of the things that we realize is sometimes it's not just the kids that need help, it's parents that need help. So we started Project 67, which is from Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7, where Moses, God told Moses to tell the children of Israel, you're going to teach them my ways as you sit at home, when you lie down, when you get up, and when you go down the road. Now, if you think about it, that's what you've done today already. You already got up. You already went down the road because you're here. You're going to go sit at home, and then you're going to lie down. That's your day. And when we teach our kids about God and his ways, it has to be part incorporated into our everyday life. So we've done seminars in Japan uh, in Europe, in Canada, and I have a lot of videos. Please look at this stuff on Facebook. There are videos. Please share them with anybody you think might benefit from them. That's why we're doing it. There's no, we, we make nothing off of it. It's complete. we just go, we, serve, we give, and we serve, and that's it. We, we want to help see the church grow. All right, let's go on to the next uh, slide. And we also started a mission 20 years ago. We're 25 years, us in Quebec, five years after we got there, we started a mission called JET, which means to the ends of the earth. And we started it to mobilize the French church for missions. And so we've taken every summer, except for 2000, uh, 20, 2020, we've taken kids on mission trips into a foreign country. And we've seen God do a great work. A hundred of those kids have gone on to Bible school, French kids. We've had 23 of those kids go into full-time ministry. And God is doing a great work uh, through that mission. And we're very, very thankful and excited about it. We'll go on to the next slide. Uh, these three are kids who were from our ministry that are now missionaries with us. Uh, they came to us after we had done all these mission trips, and they said, uh, could you guys, like, send out regular missionaries? We said, well, we've never done it before, but pretty much everything we tried we would never did before either, so we'll try it. And uh, we, we sent them out, and now Julie is working in Japan developing youth ministry and a church plant. She just finished. She's moving to Tokyo uh, this summer, and we are doing a church plant there. She's fantastic in Japanese. Uh, Most missionaries there tell me she's better than 80% of the missionaries in Japan and Japanese. She's been there five years, and so that's really good. And then uh, Philip and Isabel on the right are missionaries in Slovakia. We've been discipling Philip since he was 15 years old, and uh, he and his wife have four kids, and they are developing youth ministry in Slovak churches. All right, let's go on to the next slide. And we are also, we see the need to start a, a bilingual Bible school, French and English. If you speak English, we'll teach you French, we'll teach you Bible, then we'll send you on mission for four months in our network somewhere over around the world. If you speak French as your first language, we're gonna teach English and teach a Bible and send you out. And so we need people and money for that, so please pray for that project. All right, and then next. Now, the question is, as we wrap this up, who's your Samaritan? I was born into a family that was English Canadian. I was born in Michigan. My mother and dad were both from Ontario and I was taught by all my relatives from very young that French Canadians are no good. Ignoramus was the word I heard the most. And when my wife and I became missionaries going to Quebec, one of my aunts took us out of her will because we were moving to Quebec. This is real prejudice. This is not a color thing. French Canadians are white. English Canadians are white. It's prejudice. Prejudice is the issue. And for my family, Samaria was Quebec. The question is, who's your Samaritan? Now, if the Lord is bringing someone to your mind right now, it's probably that person. Maybe a neighbor, maybe a family member, maybe a co-worker. But someone that you just flat out don't care for. And they're a reject. They're weird. They're abnormal. I don't like them. They do strange things. They're messed up. You know what? Jesus loves them. Jesus wants you to reach your Samaritan. That's why Jesus went to the trouble to say Samaria. Because our tendency would be, well, you know, yeah, I definitely, of course, I want them to get saved and everything, of course, you know, I don't want them to go to hell, but I don't really have time to reach them right now. No, Samaria. Make sure that you're reaching your Samaria, your Samaritan. For everyone in this room, it's probably different people. But the tendency of human beings is to reject other human beings for some reason, whatever the reason might be. And you're doing kingdom families over the next five weeks. Mission starts here. Here. That's why I put that arrow. It starts here, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Fruitland Park. It starts here. If you can't go on a mission trip this summer, and a lot of people still can't because of the COVID craziness, you can do mission right here. There's a lot you can do right here. And Judea, America, and the uttermost part of the earth. But in all those places, that's why I put Samaria across there, there are rejects everywhere, societal rejects, people that are not accepted in their society. The Lord wants us to find those people, to reach those people, and to show them the truth That is Jesus. Last slide, please. I want to ask you, like we have been doing for the last 25 years, to sign up to pray for us. There's a clipboard out there. There are actually two clipboards. Put your name. Put however you want us to contact you, email or regular mail. We do still send out envelopes. uh, And uh, we'd be happy to send you an envelope. We don't mind paying for the postage because your prayers are worth it. And if you do sign up by email, you'll get more stuff. You get pictures and things like that that we can't put in a regular letter. But either way, what we want is your prayers. So please sign up and pick a day, one day a week. Don't pray for us seven days a week. you got too many other things to pray for. Pick one day and then forget about us the rest of the week. But please sign up to pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity to have been here at Heritage this morning. I want to pray for this series on kingdom families. I pray that you do a great thing in this church and a great thing in this community because of this church. Thank you that you have given many people, I think, this morning an idea of who their Samaritan might be. And I pray you'll help them to act on that and to respond uh, to your leading and to reach out to that Samaritan or those Samaritans in their life. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. you blessed this morning. There's a challenge that's been offered up to us. To discover who our neighbor is, and you already know who that is, don't you? Who is it that maybe I've left out of, of sharing the gospel because of my own prejudices? It doesn't always have to do with color, does it? A lot of different issues. Um, we want to send you out, you guys, out this morning. You'll be able to see what Jeff has in the back, and Jeff, again, we're very thankful. Thank you for setting the pace. Missions are important, and missions do begin at home. You don't have to take your kids overseas to teach them how to do God's work. That can happen right here. It could be a while before we go to some of the places that we're used to going. I was just in some conversations this week, and it's not just COVID. It's just the violence and things that are going on in various places, some of the places we can get into, but they can't assure us that we can get out. That's not the place I'm going to take you. I may take Kevin Burke with me. Kevin will go with me. But we can't take our families into situations like that, Um, but we are still giving. We're still walking alongside, praying for those, Um, but we definitely want to be active in what God is doing. Uh, As you're leaving this morning, I want you to be in prayer, talking about kingdom families and kingdom perspective. We have a team that this morning is providing uh, the music, the children's work, um, the preaching down at at a church in South Florida. And uh, it's a privilege that God has blessed us with so many talented and gifted people that we can bless other churches uh, and be a part of what God is doing in other places so you be for them in their travels. And then also uh, be reminded to pray this morning. I got sort of been distracted a little bit because I've been on the phone back and forth with Leanne and Larry Pierce. Their daughter, Katie, was in a very serious accident this morning on the way back from home. She works at the hospital and they have her up at the hospital with head trauma in know, so if you'd be reminded to pray for them. Um, we are thankful for God's presence in the midst of whatever we may experience. Let me pray over you today as, uh, as we leave this place. Father, we're here to celebrate and to be reminded of the Word, and there may be some, I'm just reminded at this place, there may be some that, that don't know you. Um, even today, they have the ability to cry out to you, to confess their sin, to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and place their faith in you. Uh, Father, if there are people like that today, even today, would they come and would they make that decision saying, Jesus, I want to give my life to you. For those of us that are believers here today, we have heard the challenge for us to be very active in going out in ministry, discovering those that are our neighbor, being very effective and diligent, and courageous and bold in sharing our testimony, living out our faith on a daily basis. Thank you for the privilege we have of of interacting within our community and going into the places of work and business and play that we do and living out our Christian faith. Father, I pray that this week we'd be reminded that we are your ambassadors, your hands and your feet. Help us to continue to live out a legacy of faith that there will be ripples sent throughout the generations to follow because of our faithfulness. Thank you for those that have been faithful that have gone before us. May we continue to lift the torch of Jesus Christ, salvation by God's grace through faith and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.